This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Now in this island of Atlantis, there was a great and wonderful empire which had rule over the whole island and several others, and over parts of the continent, and furthermore, the men of Atlantis had subjected the parts of Libya within the columns of Heracles, as far as Egypt, and of Europe as far as Tyrrhenia. This vast power gathered into one endeavored to subdue and blow our country and yours and the whole of the region within the straits. And then, Solon, your country shone forth in the excellent of her virtue and strength among all mankind. She was preeminent in courage and military skill, and was the leader of the Hellenes. And when the rest fell off from her, being compelled to stand alone after having undergone the very extremity of danger, she defeated and triumphed over the invaders, and preserved from slavery those who were not yet subjugated, and generously liberated all the rest of us who dwell within the pillars. But afterwards there occurred violent earthquakes and floods, and in a single day and night of misfortune, all your warlike men in a body sank into the earth, and the island of Atlantis in like manner disappeared in the depths of the sea.
Let's talk about Atlantis. Oh, hi, hello, welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I'm your host, Liv, here with the first ever special season of episodes. Because what else could I do if I was going to cover the story of Atlantis? If you're going to hear the story of Atlantis from me, you're going to hear about it the right way. The right way being, well, through the eyes of the actual ancient Greek sources. This is the first episode in a special series of episodes that I have been working towards for ages and ages and ages. It started way back in the day as me wanting to tell you all the myth of the lost island of Atlantis. Like most of you, I grew up learning the idea that Atlantis was a myth, specifically a Greek myth, in the same vein as the Minotaur in the Labyrinth or Homer's Odyssey. Popular culture has certainly led us to believe they're cut from the same cloth, that just like the Minotaur in the Labyrinth and Homer's Odyssey come from a long tradition of oral storytelling that changed and grew more intricate as time went on, before it was finally written down into what we have today, we're led to believe that just like that Labyrinth and the Odyssey, Atlantis was a part of oral storytelling culture of ancient Greece. We're not meant to believe that there truly was a minotaur in a labyrinth on Crete, or that Odysseus really did meet with the Cyclops Polyphemus, let alone Scylla and Charybdis or the cannibal Lystragonians. We are meant to understand them for what they were, stories told by traveling bards over generations, changed and adapted to suit the regions where the stories were being sung, meant to hype up the people, to remind them that they were descended from great heroes of old. So surely, with how widespread an idea the story of Atlantis is, how often searches for the lost city are publicized, or how often maritime archaeological finds are attributed in, granted, non-academic sources, as being Atlantis itself, surely, due to all that, it was a myth in ancient Greece, a story told amongst these ancient people, surely it's at least that. I mean, there's even a Disney movie. Surely all of that means Atlantis was a Greek myth, that it really was in the vein of the Minotaur and the Labyrinth or Odysseus and his Odyssey. Surely they're equivalent types of stories. Alas, they are absolutely not. Atlantis is none of those things. And that's what makes it so interesting and weird and we'll get there. Over the next three weeks, I'm going to be bringing you a series of special episodes. And by special, I mean, well, I plan them in advance and set out to dedicate these three whole weeks to this story, this idea, this... Well, we'll get there. But it's also special because, well, spoilers, Atlantis is absolutely not a Greek myth in any sense of the word. So for these episodes, the podcast is really better called Let's Talk About Things Plato Invented to Make a Point. But we'll get there. I've prepared some of the most research-heavy episodes I've ever done for this podcast, diving into the original sources, the nonsensical notions that have spawned from those original sources, and beyond. We're going to look at what the story of Atlantis actually is, what it has become, and the ramifications of that. Because, well, it gets darker than you could ever possibly imagine. And that's why I'm finally doing this. It's also why I'm covering Atlantis in the way that I am. 
there's nothing inherently wrong with being interested in Atlantis, with researching the original sources, with thinking about it in an ancient context. But over the past couple hundred years, interest in Atlantis and belief in Atlantis has shifted. It's now full of so-called archaeologists who ignore the facts of the ancient world in order to fit the narrative they've already got in their heads. And even worse, it's full of conspiracy theorists who, more often than not, have links to dangerous racist ideologies, if not outright Nazism. Yeah, bet you didn't see that coming. But hey, we'll get there. I've spoken with experts in archaeology of the region as well as archaeological experts in pseudo-archaeology, that is, something that presents itself as scientific and archaeological but is, in fact, only looking to prove a predetermined belief. These are the people studying real archaeology and speaking out against these often racist pseudo-archaeological endeavors, things like searches for Atlantis or ancient aliens, notions that seem innocuous, even funny, until you realize what it all comes down to. Straight up racism. Over the next three weeks, I'm going to be bringing you six episodes, plus two fun bonus episodes, work I'm so beyond proud of. These episodes are important and fascinating, and they're education that people can't easily find on their own. I'm so thrilled to be able to bring them to you. I have done all the hard work learning the truth, so you just get to learn it the fun way. I've been looking forward to this for ages, and I've finally been able to make it happen. Atlantis, guys. It's truly something else. I'm going to tell you every tiny thing there is to know about the ancient concept of Atlantis and all the ways that concept has been taken to a whole other world. There is simultaneously so, so much to say about Atlantis, even though ultimately from an ancient perspective and certainly from a mythological one, there is absolutely nothing at all to say about Atlantis. Intrigued? I certainly hope so. It is going to be a wild ride. This is episode 150, Deconstructing Atlantis Part 1, Finding Atlantis in the Depths of Plato's Imagination. Atlantis. What do we all picture when we think of Atlantis? The first thing that comes to mind is probably the myth of a lost city within the depths of the sea, right? Or maybe you think about an incredibly technologically advanced civilization that was lost to an earthquake and a flood. Maybe you think about Thera, the island in Greece that was destroyed by a world-changing volcanic eruption during the Bronze Age. What's left of it is now Santorini. Maybe you're like me and obsessively play Assassin's Creed Odyssey, so you're thinking of the final bit of the Atlantis DLC. Or maybe you simply think of the Disney movie, Milo and all his dreams and schemes that were for so long ignored. At the absolute worst, you might just imagine the Jason Momoa movie Aquaman, but I would really prefer if you didn't think of that one at all. I kid, kind of. I hear that movie's really bad. 
it's pretty hard to have existed in the last century or so, at least in the English-speaking world, and not have a few thoughts and ideas about the lost city of Atlantis. You've heard of it, at least, or you've seen movies, TV shows, video games, books, and even documentaries about this famed lost city. With the amount we've all been inundated with Atlantis lore over the years, surely it must have been a very famous and important Greek myth, right? Or a story. Or history. I mean, that's absolutely what I thought. I thought that right up until I went to research it for the show all the way at the beginning of last year. That's when I realized it was going to take more than just a standard episode. The quote I read at the top of this episode is one of the few ancient references to Atlantis. There is only one ancient source that really mentions Atlantis. Only one. One single source. Take that in for a moment, because it's important. Before we dive too deep into sourcing and evidence and what it means for something to have only one surviving reference in the whole of antiquity, let's go over the idea of Atlantis as it exists in the one single source in which Atlantis is ever mentioned. Over the next three Tuesday episodes, I'm going to be talking about the story of Atlantis from a number of angles. Like I said, we will go over what it means that it only has this one source. But today is focusing on the story itself and how it differs from, well, everything else I talk about on this show ever. Particularly the mythology and storytelling and history. So what was the deal with Atlantis, when it comes to ancient references, at least? To start, I'll give you another direct quote from that source, because you all know how much I like reading directly from sources. In fact, in today's episode, there's going to be a lot of reading from this source and breaking down what exactly the source is claiming, because, like I said, this source is all we have when it comes to Atlantis. As always, my sources are in the episode's description. In this case, you can read these whole pieces for free online. I've linked to them. Our ancient source begins, quote, Let me begin by observing, first of all, that 9,000 was the sum of years which had elapsed since the war which was said to have taken place between those who dwelt outside the pillars of Heracles and all who dwelt within them. This war I am going to describe. Of the combatants on the one side, the city of Athens was reported to have been the leader and to have fought out the war. The combatants on the other side were commanded by the kings of Atlantis, which, as I was saying, was an island greater in extent than Libya and Asia, and when afterwards sunk by an earthquake, became an impassable barrier of mud to voyagers sailing from hence to any part of the ocean. Now you might have noticed... That sounds nothing like the regular sources I read from. There's no sing-songy poetry or storytelling. It's no Homeric hymn, let alone Homer. That's because, spoilers, Atlantis doesn't appear in any Greek myths or traditional stories or epic poems or historical sources or any sources that discussed things like mythology or storytelling or epic poetry or history. Atlantis appears in, just, Plato. And in just one small section in the whole of Plato's prolific surviving writings, Plato the philosopher, who lived between the 5th and 4th centuries BCE. That's right, Plato and only Plato, and only this one time in Plato. That is the million dollar point here, so tuck that in your brain pockets, we'll come back to it. 
This text by Plato, the philosopher, was written in the form of a dialogue. This is how Plato framed his philosophical writings and theories, through fictionalized conversations between people, the people themselves being both real and imaginary. Plato himself was rarely, if ever, a party in these fictional conversations, and they usually took place many decades before he wrote them, and included Socrates, who was Plato's teacher and mentor and who was long dead by the point of this writing. Or, to remind you all the joke coined by classics meme guy Ben in a previous episode of this podcast, Socrates was invented by Plato to sell more philosophy. The dialogues in question, the Timaeus and the Critias, are from quite late in the grand scheme of Plato's writing, about 15 years after one of his most famous works, The Republic. But they're quite connected with The Republic. Broadly, The Republic is Plato laying out his notion of what would be an ideal state. Now, this is not a philosophy podcast, thank God, so we're not diving into that. But it's important because the idea of an ideal state and ideal society is revisited in the Timaeus, and in the Critias is then presented in example through the story of a war between prehistoric cities. Together, the Timaeus and the Critias make up the entirety of ancient writing about Atlantis, and Atlantis isn't even part of much of the former, which was concerned with a number of issues. The idea of Atlantis existing at all is briefly introduced in the Timaeus and fleshed out in the Critias, both works that present a dialogue between a few people. The Timaeus comes as a response to Socrates' rehashing of the idea of a so-called ideal state, which, like I said, is found in more detail in Plato's Republic. Basically, we're to believe that Socrates has just described his ideal state, but he thinks he maybe didn't tell it in an exciting enough way, so well, perhaps those around him could add to it. The least important man in these dialogues, a man named Hermocrates, says that Critias knows just the story. Critias agrees, introducing the story of Atlantis in the section I read at the top of the episode, before they agree that this story will actually have to come after Timaeus tells his bit about the origin of the universe and humanity. Thus, the majority of the story of Atlantis exists in the Critias dialogue that follows the Timaeus. The quote I read at the very beginning is a part of the bit about Atlantis that appears in the Timaeus, and it acts sort of as like a teaser before the big story comes in the Critias. The biggest reason why this story of Atlantis is sometimes presented as historical is that Plato did use real people in his dialogues, or he used the names of real people. The timeline, though, just doesn't check out. By the time he'd written this, Socrates was long dead, like decades dead, as well as Critias, who tells the story itself. He's also part of a line of Critias so it's debated who this was even meant to represent. And Timaeus, meanwhile, may or may not have been a real guy. Or, alternatively, the story of Atlantis is sometimes believed to be in the vein of oral storytelling, like I mentioned earlier, like Homer or Hesiod, except there's zero evidence for that either. No mention of Atlantis appears before Plato used it to make this point, and no reference exists in art or pottery or, well, anywhere. Next week, I'll go into more detail about what all of that means. Today, the story itself. Now, the other quote I've already read from is from the Critias, where Plato, through the mouth of Critias, is about to really dive into Atlantis. So let's go over the details in that quote again. Critias says, quote, Let me begin by observing, first of all, that 9,000 was the sum of years which had elapsed since the war which was said to have taken place between those who dwelt outside the pillars of Heracles and all who dwelt within them. This war I'm going to describe. 
of the combatants on the one side, the city of Athens was reported to have been the leader and to have fought out the war. The combatants on the other side were commanded by the kings of Atlantis, which, as I was saying, was an island greater in extent than Libya and Asia, and when afterwards sunk by an earthquake, became an impassable barrier of mud to voyagers sailing from hence to any part of the ocean. Unquote. Okay, so first off, and most importantly, Critias here is saying that it's been 9,000 years since the story they're about to tell happened. 9,000 years before Plato's time, which was early 4th century BCE, so we're talking almost 12,000 years from now, give or take. That's a really long time ago. Now, in defense of this, technically the story being told by Plato through these dialogues, if it were real, would have taken place a few decades earlier, so not a big difference, but I want to make sure I'm giving you all the details. Okay, so it's been 9,000 years, and apparently there were two groups of people, one that resided within the Pillars of Heracles and one that resided outside of them. Now, Plato is using ancient terms here, so let me break it down for you in terms of modern regions. The Pillars of Heracles refers to the Strait of Gibraltar, that narrow bit of sea between Spain and the continent of Africa. Libya, meanwhile, refers to much of North Africa when it comes to Greek writing. Basically, as much of Africa as they knew existed. They called it Libya. Now, that isn't necessarily helpful information because we're about to discover that this story is also about the continents of Africa, Asia, and Europe changing pretty drastically. Case in point, according to Critias in Plato's dialogue, Atlantis was an island that was greater in extent than Africa and Asia. An island bigger than Africa and Asia. Now, some people immediately say that this means he's talking about the Americas. No. The island is meant to be just beyond the Pillars of Heracles, not an Atlantic Ocean away, as we'll get into in a moment. They simply did not have the capability to cross the Atlantic, and that is not what he is talking about. Yeah, so the supposed evidence is getting less and less believable, but let's keep going. Next, let's revisit the quote I shared at the very beginning of the episode, from the Timaeus, the first time Atlantis is mentioned, because there's something important in there. In that dialogue, Critias says, quote, The men of Atlantis had subjected the parts of Libya within the columns of Heracles as far as Egypt, and of Europe as far as Tyrrhenia. So like I've already clarified, the columns or pillars of Heracles is the Strait of Gibraltar, Libya is North Africa, and this newly mentioned region, Tyrrhenia, I'm assuming is basically Italy. That's because the Tyrrhenian Sea is the sea on the western side of Italy, off Rome. There's your confirmation. Plato is not saying that a city in the Americas also controlled much of Africa and Europe in 12,000 BCE. That is, quite simply, absurd. These points make it very clear where Plato's Critias says Atlantis was. According to the earlier quote, the island is just beyond the Strait of Gibraltar in the Atlantic Ocean, but the kingdom seems to have spanned North Africa all the way to Egypt and Europe from the Strait of Gibraltar to Italy. This distinction is important for all the reasons I just said. Notably, because in the Timaeus, as you heard earlier, we're also explicitly told that Atlantis was, quote, afterwards sunk by an earthquake, became an impassable barrier of mud to voyagers sailing from hence to any part of the ocean. But, now that we know the region in question, let's go back to the Critias dialogue. 
Remember, that last bit was from the Timaeus, the teaser to the wider story of Atlantis that's told in the Critias. I know it's a bit confusing because these dialogues are named for the men in them, but both men appear in both dialogues. Basically, the Timaeus is about a lot of things to do with humanity and the beginning of it with a hint at Atlantis, whereas the Critias is all about Atlantis itself. In both cases, it's a man named Critias who is actually telling the story of Atlantis. But also, Plato invented the whole dialogue. Plato makes our lives very confusing. In the Critias dialogue, Critias explains the size and general location of Atlantis, but he also says something very important. He says, quote, This war I am going to describe, of the combatants on one side, the city of Athens was reported to have been the leader and to have fought out the war. The combatants on the other side were commanded by the kings of Atlantis. Okay, so again, we're talking about 12,000 years ago, making the time period straight up the Stone Age, and Critias is talking about the city of Athens. Huh. That sounds new, doesn't it? When you think of the Atlantis we've heard about in pop culture, in movies, and documentaries, and wherever else, you hear about Atlantis, but do you ever hear about not only Athens existing at the same time period as Atlantis, but Athens also going to war with Atlantis? I certainly never had. Milo's not talking about Athens in that precious Disney movie. But before we get too deep into questioning the Athens of it all, first and foremost, when one hears 12,000 years in the past, we should be asking, okay, for real though, if this were a true story, how on earth do these people know of it? That is truly the million dollar question. So according to the earlier dialogue, the Timaeus were told that Critias heard it from his grandfather, who heard it from his father, who was a friend of Solon, the Athenian statesman, who heard it from some Egyptian priests who have, it seems, kept record of such things. Still, remember, no other real text reference to Atlantis exists, in Greece or Egypt or otherwise, or any visual representation, for that matter. Continuing on with the Critias, from here Critias goes on to explain not anything to do with this mystical lost city of Atlantis, but instead he describes in great detail the prehistoric Athens that went to war with Atlantis. Because, another spoiler, the entire point of the story of Atlantis is that they went to war with Athens and Athens is actually the city to be emulated. Athens is the good guy and Atlantis is the bad guy. Unexpected, right? So Critias speaks about this prehistoric Athens, this Athens that supposedly existed 12,000 years ago. Now, let's hear about this extra ancient Athens, this Neolithic Athens, which was, quote, Inhabited in those days by various classes of citizens. There were artisans and there were husbandsmen, and there was also a warrior class originally set apart by divine men. The latter dwelt themselves and had all things suitable for nurture and education, Neither had any of them anything of their own, but they regarded all that they had as common property, nor did they claim to receive the other citizens anything more than their necessary food. Unquote. Hmm. Sounding less and less Neolithic, isn't it? 
but let's keep going. Critias goes on to explain that what's left of Attica, the region of Greece where Athens is, is very different from what it was back then. He suggests there was not only more land, but a more fertile land, but that many deluges happened in the intervening years. This is a way to link the story to actual mythological traditions of Greece, where the flood story featuring Deucalion and Pyrrha is a humanity origin story. If you're curious, I've linked to my episode on that story in this one's description. Through Critias, Plato describes this Neolithic Athens, saying that the Acropolis hill extended past the Peniques and to the Lycabetus, two other hills still in Athens now. He describes how people lived, the temples and buildings. It's extensive, really, this description, and super familiar and detailed. It's almost as if it's modeled after the classical Athens in which Plato lived. It is. Still, he goes on. Once he's described in detail the visual representations of this prehistoric Athens, he finishes his introduction to these Neolithic Athenians with, quote, This is how they dwelt, being the guardians of their own citizens and the leaders of the Hellenes, who were their willing followers. And they took care to preserve the same number of men and women through all time, being so many as were required for warlike purposes, then, as now, that is to say, about 20,000. Such were the ancient Athenians, and after this manner they righteously administered their own land and the rest of Hellas. They were renowned all over Europe and Asia for the beauty of their persons and for the many virtues of their souls, and of all the men who lived in those days, they were the most illustrious. Unquote. If this isn't classical Athenian propaganda with a dash of eugenics, I'm not sure what is. Note, not only the showy language, the excessive flattery, and the unrealistic and certainly ahistorical descriptions of governance, but also the complete lack of any king or official ruler. Athens, you see, ruled itself. And remember, he still hasn't talked about Atlantis in any detail. But... Once he's laid out how brilliant and incredible and important and virtuous and illustrious and renowned and beautiful these prehistoric Athenians in Athens were, he determines he can move on to tell his listeners about their adversaries in the war, the kings of Atlantis. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. 
That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Before we, alongside Plato's Critias, move on to explaining Atlantis, he's got something to note real quick. Critias prefaces his story of Atlantis by saying, Now, you guys might notice that the names I'm going to use to refer to the Atlanteans are Greek names, and you might think, whoa, why is that? Well, Critias says, it's because Solon, who heard from the Egyptian priests, who heard from who knows who, or maybe they read it in records that we have no surviving reference to, Anyway, Solon read these names, but they'd been translated into Egyptian, so then when he read them, he translated them into Greek, so you know they sound Greek, even though we're talking about a totally different world and language and time period and whatever. Anyway, you know, FYI, I guess, is basically what Critias says. Sure. He goes on, finally diving into the story of this lost city of Atlantis. Interestingly, it begins with gods in a way the story of Athens doesn't, and I think this is notable. Athens, Plato via Critias, does introduce as the city of Athena and Hephaestus, because that's true to their city's mythological narrative, but he doesn't give them credit for everything in the way he's about to give Poseidon credit for much of Atlantis. Poseidon, mind you. Poseidon, the god whose stories primarily involve him assaulting women and little else, Poseidon who notably lost the competition for the naming rights of Athens, where Athena beat him out to become the patron goddess of the city, that it is Poseidon in Atlantis versus Athena in Athens is not accidental or unintentional. So, Critias tells us, Poseidon was given as his domain the region which would become Atlantis. There, on a mountain, lived a man and his wife and their daughter, Cleto. Poseidon, surprise, surprise, wanted Cleto. Plato, through Critias, tells us that, quote, 
Poseidon fell in love with her and had intercourse with her, and, breaking the ground, enclosed the hill in which she dwelt all round, making alternate zones of sea and land larger and smaller, encircling one another. There were two of land and three of water, which he turned as with a lathe, each having its circumference equidistant every way from the centre, so that no man could get to the island, for ships and voyages were not as yet. He himself, being a god, found no difficulty in making special arrangements for the center island, bringing up two springs of water from beneath the earth, one of warm water and the other of cold, and making every variety of food to spring up abundantly from the soil. Unquote. Honestly, it should be proof enough that this isn't actually a myth, simply because Poseidon is described as actually falling in love with a woman and working for her affection rather than straight up assaulting her. Whereas in traditional mythology, one time he assaults a woman and then gives her a little freshwater spring as thanks. But suddenly we're to believe he's falling in love and giving a woman a specially built city? Please. Though not remotely the point of today's episode, this is a good example of how this story is told not like a myth, not like a piece of oral storytelling that's been written down or a hymn to the gods. It's being told to prove an unrelated point. We're told that Poseidon keeps up his building of this city with the help of a whole lot of kids that he has with Cleto, including five pairs of twin male children. Five sets of twins! Okay, so the oldest of the oldest sets of twins is a man named Atlas. He's where they get the name for the city, as Poseidon installs him as kind of the number one king. These children each ruled sections of the city, with Atlas in the center. And they passed these on to their children when they died, and so on and so on and so on, down generations. Atlantis, we're told, was very rich in, basically, everything— Orichalcum was big, a mysterious alloy that seems to have been a real thing, but also in this case is described as being lost. It doesn't really matter. The point is the city was rich, and what they were most rich in no longer existed by the time Plato is talking about this. Honestly, most of this doesn't matter for my point, but I know you all will be interested in hearing this description of Atlantis. Plato used a hell of a lot of words to make what is ultimately a fairly simple point— but we'll get there. The palace at the center of the city where they most wanted to show off their riches is described in this quote. At the very beginning, they built the palace in the habitation of the god and of their ancestors, which they continued to ornament in successive generations, every king surpassing the one who went before him to the utmost of his power, until they made the building a marvel to behold for size and for beauty. Continuing this description, Plato, through the voice of Critias, tells us about some of the waterways that were built, because this city was meant to be quite connected with the water, it's an island after all, and we're meant to understand that, at this point, many generations of mortals have passed. And so, he says, quote, They divided at the bridges the zones of land which parted the zones of sea, leaving room for a single trireme to pass out of one zone into another, and they covered over the channel so as to leave a way underneath for the ships. Unquote. Take that in. So we're now meant to believe they had triremes and ships 12,000 years ago. Okay? 
Remember, the works attributed to Homer were written down probably in the 7th or 6th centuries BCE, with the understanding that that had the Trojan War taken place, it would have been in the Bronze Age, so generally the 11th or maybe 12th centuries BCE. Meanwhile, this would have been the 9th or 10th millennium BCE, like the 100th century BCE-ish. Yeah. Moving on, Plato, through Critias, continues this description of Atlantis with an emphasis on wealth. It is all about how showy this city was, how exorbitant their wealth was, and how they showed it off. He speaks of a temple to Poseidon and Cleto that was cut off from everyone else, and another temple to Poseidon was, quote, a stadium in length and half a stadium in width and of a proportionate height, having a strange barbaric appearance. All the outside of the temple, with the exception of the pinnacles, they covered with silver, and the pinnacles with gold. In the interior of the temple, the roof was ivory, curiously wrought everywhere with gold and silver and orichalcum, and all the other parts, the walls and pillars and floor, they coated with orichalcum. The wealth and pride in that wealth is the point. From here, Critias moves on to describing their military prowess, another instance where everything he talks about sounds a lot more like the classical period, Plato's time, or maybe to stretch it, the Archaic period, than it does even the Bronze Age, let alone the Neolithic period. Here's a bit to give you an idea. Quote, the leader was required to furnish for the war the sixth portion of a war chariot so as to make up a total of 10,000 chariots, also two horses and riders for them, and a pair of chariot horses without a seat, accompanied by a horseman who could fight on foot, carrying a small shield, and having a charioteer who stood behind the man-at-arms to guide the two horses. Also, he was bound to furnish two heavy-armed soldiers, two archers, two slingers, three stone-shooters, and three javelin men, who were light-armed, and four sailors to make up the complement of 1,200 ships. Like I said, the technology here sounds pretty much like Greece during Plato's lifetime rather than 9,000 years prior, but the most notable and relevant piece is actually the volume of Atlanteans that were said to make up their military. It's meant to stand in direct contrast to the explicit 20,000 people who lived in this utopian Athens of the same time. Athens was an ideal state run by the people where everyone was happy and had what they needed. Again, with a dash of eugenics because it's Plato, but we get to ignore that right now. He meant it to be ideal. Whereas Atlantis was this enormous military power with endless more people and wealth run by kings. The connection to the Greeks during the Persian Wars here is explicit too. Persia was the power with tens of thousands more soldiers, whereas Greece, and here explicitly Athens, prevailed with their much smaller army. It is meant to be very similar, as Athens will prevail in the war with Atlantis. Still, Plato, through Critias, doesn't spend too much time on their military. Their number and skill and weaponry is the point. Before he moves on to their leadership another of his primary points. 
there are said to be ten kings of Atlantis, all descended from Poseidon, who each have their own regions to govern. Quote, Each of the ten kings in his own division and his own city had the absolute control of the citizens and, in most cases, of the laws, punishing and slaying whomsoever he would. Unquote. In moving on, we shift to the cruelness is the point, the absolute power of these kings as a direct contradiction to the Athens described earlier. All of this is meant to show a distinction between the two. Athens was run by the people. It was beautiful, but not over the top. They weren't showing off their wealth, but living in a means that was appropriate to them, that kept the gods happy, and the citizens comfortable and thriving amongst themselves, without the need for any king holding absolute power. Not like Atlantis, which is full of hubris and pride and its people existing to be subjected to these ten kings who could punish or kill whoever they wished. Still, though their wealth and absolute power was the point of the story itself, Plato does make clear that this didn't make them bad, at least not in the beginning. He says, actually, at first, they were virtuous, and though they were exorbitantly rich in gold, they didn't care for it, and in fact saw it as a burden. This is an odd contradiction given he's just described their cities as being rich and decorated in a means of displaying that richness to everyone, but it's on purpose. He's clear here, they were virtuous, at least for a while. But over time, they got caught up in their own hubris, their greed, their wealth, and their power— the point being, if they hadn't had those things to begin with, even if they'd begun as a virtuous society, they wouldn't have had the opportunity to have the pride and the hubris and that greed take over. This next one is a long quote, but it's important. But they were sober and saw clearly that all these goods are increased by virtue and friendship with one another, whereas by too great regard and respect for them, they are lost in friendship with them. By such reflections and by the continuance in them of a divine nature, the qualities which we have described grew and increased among them. But when the divine portion began to fade away and became diluted too often and too much with the mortal admixture— and the human nature got the upper hand, they then, being unable to bear their fortune, behaved unseemly, and to him who had an eye to see grew visibly debased, for they were losing the fairest of their precious gifts. But to those who had no eye to see the true happiness, they appeared glorious and blessed at the very time when they were full of avarice and unrighteous power. Zeus, the god of gods who rules according to law and is able to see into such things, perceiving that an honorable race was in a woeful plight and wanting to inflict punishment on them, that they might be chastened and improve, collected all the gods into their most holy habitation, which, being placed in the center of the world, beholds all created things. And when he had called them together, he spoke as follows. And, well, that's it. That's the entirety of the Critias, the fictional dialogue written by Plato to discuss both an ideal society and one that begins ideal and then descends into hubris. 
It isn't obviously the entirety of what Plato intended to write, or even what he wrote at the time necessarily, but it's certainly all that survives today. And yes, it cuts off right before we hear what Zeus is about to say. The Timaeus and the Critias of Plato were meant to be part of a trilogy. The Timaeus survives in its entirety, describing the origins of the universe and humanity, and giving us just a hint of Atlantis itself. The Critias exists up to this point, just as Atlantis is beginning to decline, when their civilization was becoming too hubristic, too full of themselves, too impious due to their own power and wealth, when the Ten Kings were becoming tyrannical. Zeus is about to punish them for it, and then... The rest is lost or unfinished. Of course, we already heard at the beginning that Atlantis was lost to an earthquake, so the implication here is that Zeus is about to convene a meeting of the gods to discuss Atlantis, and they will, eventually, be punished with a city-destroying earthquake, presumably, in the end, sent by Poseidon himself, their father, as he's the god of earthquakes. But it seems not before they fight a war with Athens. Because remember, that too comes at the beginning of the story. The whole point of it, the entire purpose of this dialogue, is to detail this perfect utopian Athens who would go to war against the increasingly tyrannical and hubristic Atlantis. This state that will be condemned by the gods. This is what's so fascinating to me, given what the idea of Atlantis is now. Atlantis was not the good guys. They were the bad guys. They were greedy and they grew too powerful and too proud and they were taken down by Athens in a war. Athens, who is meant to be this perfect ideal state. It's fucking wild what this story has become. There are just so many glaringly obvious reasons why this is just a story invented by Plato to make a point about an ideal society and how to run a city. It simply isn't about Atlantis being real or not. It's about making a point about their hubris and their leadership in comparison to that of the Athenians. It's presented simply in the way that Plato liked to present his theories, as if they were real conversations. But not to worry, I'll break all of this and more down for you in the coming episodes. You don't have to take my word for it. Because next week, how Plato uses fictional storytelling as allegory for philosophical theorizing. We look at history, mythology, ancient text sources, and archaeological sources. But before that, on Friday's episode, I spoke with archaeologist Flint Dibble all about Mediterranean archaeology, Bronze Age archaeology, and earlier, and what we do know about what did and did not exist in the region in the Bronze Age and earlier. We talked about Plato and what it means that Plato is the only source to reference Atlantis. And, well, we talked about the dangerous conspiracies that have arisen and why pseudo-archaeology is more dangerous than it is silly. Oh, nerds, thank you so much for listening. I'm so excited to be bringing you this special series of episodes. Atlantis is fascinating to me, but less so because of the story of the city itself and more because of what it has become. That will be the focus of much of the rest of this series. I realize it's different. It's not storytelling in the same way, but I think it's equally fascinating and I think you will agree. 
I really struggled with how to cover Atlantis. I wanted it to be fun and silly, and I wanted to be able to tell you all the story before I dove into how it doesn't fit as a myth or history or even really as a story from the ancient world. But the more I saw about how ideas of Atlantis has have devolved online, how many dangerous conspiracies abound, and how forcefully these believers will emphasize their misguided beliefs, the more I knew I couldn't do it that way. I had to come at it, honestly, right from the top. The thing is, though, fortunately, Atlantis is fascinating all the same. Plato's story is fascinating. The way it's misinterpreted and misunderstood is fascinating. And the complex lack of any evidence ever at all of either myth or history is doubly fascinating. So I hope I made the right call when it comes to an entertaining and engaging story, but I know I made the right call morally. And not to worry, the future episodes will go much deeper into what it means and why it's important that I told the story in the way that I did. Next week, we'll learn what exactly Plato was doing with the Critias and the story of Atlantis and dive into what evidence exists beyond Plato. We'll talk about the history of the region and what the story tells us about itself. And the week after, we'll cover what I've already mentioned, the ramifications of Atlantis, what it means to look for Atlantis and the danger of some, though not all, of those searches. In the end, though, regardless of why people are looking, it all comes down to the same similar issues. Because, well, like I've said, it turns out it's dark as hell and has implications that you absolutely will not believe. If you're anything like I was, you just grew up with it in pop culture and thought it sounded cool. And sure, it does, but it's become something else. Atlantis often represents something incredibly dark within humanity when it isn't just perpetuating pseudo-archaeology and the danger of going looking for something you're already convinced exists. But hey, I won't try to explain all that to you now. That's literally why I spoke with these incredible archaeologists, because they know this better than I do. I just wanted you all to understand why I've handled it the way that I have. So stay tuned. There's so much more to come when it comes to Atlantis. It may not be a myth, but it is a wild ride all the same. But hey, I won't try to explain all this to you now. That's why I spoke with these incredible archaeologists, because they know this much better than I do. So stay tuned. There's so much more to come when it comes to Atlantis. It may not be a myth, but it is a wild ride all the same. Special thanks to listener Jade, who helped me with Atlantis research all the way back in January of 2021, before I realized just how much more I could put into this series and therefore set about procrastinating and putting it off for a full year. And to the incredible Sarah Richard, illustrator extraordinaire. You'll know Sarah's work from our book, Greek Mythology, The Gods, Goddesses, and Heroes Handbook, and from our upcoming book, Nectar of the Gods, which includes the illustration that led me to ask Sarah to illustrate the incredible images used for this series and the promotion of it. Facepalm Play-Doh might be my favorite thing ever. Thank you, Sarah and Jade. And thank you to all you listeners. You're the best. I am Liv, and I love actual mythology. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity, and it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.